Revelation chapter 3. Um, I love those old hymns. Um, I can't wait to see what the songbook in heaven looks like. We're singing some hymns this morning that were well over 200 years old, but when we get on the other side, we'll sing some songs, I'm sure, that are over 6,000 years old. God's people have been writing songs, singing Him praises from the very beginning, and I'm looking forward um, to that day. Um, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 14 this morning. This will be the last uh, message to the churches. And um, Revelation kind of shifts gears in chapter 4 and goes to a post-church age, I believe. Um, There's a picture in chapter 4 of the rapture, and uh, Lord willing, we'll we'll dig into that next week. But this is all about Jesus, and I know there's a lot that we can unpack in here that applies to us. There's a lot that that we can glean. There's a lot we can learn even about um, what's what this world is going to face during the tribulation. And certainly at the end of the book, we can learn a little bit about our eternal home. But the book is ultimately about Jesus. It, it says that from the very beginning. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and the Gospels have given us a clear picture of, um, of his life on earth and what he accomplished for us in that life. Um, we see glimpses of what his eternal plan um, is, who he is in the future, but... For the most part, the Gospels and the Epistles um, talk to us about who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us. Revelation completes the picture and shows us not only who Jesus was and what he did, but who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he will do um, and who he will be um, in that eternal future. And so this is just an unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all this book is about. And chapter 2 and 3 deal specifically, I've said this from the beginning, I I think if you want to talk about the most important part of the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 1, 2, and 3 for us. Because that's where we live, and that's where Jesus is at. The Bible says that he is in the midst of his church. Those seven golden candlesticks, I believe, represents the totality of Christianity. And where is Jesus at? He's in the midst of his church. And what is he doing there? He's holding his messengers in his hand. And his right hand of authority, those stars, those angels, those people that he has called to lead his church. And in in that activity, he uh, he is judging the church in the sense that he finds what the church is doing right. He commends them for it. He sees what the church is doing wrong, and he condemns them for it. He... um. He offers us a way out of our rebellious and, um, and exhorts us to do things and always begins with the word repent. If you're doing wrong, the next step out of the wrongdoing is to repent of it, to have a change of heart and change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. And then he gives us promises if we do. And all of those promises that we've read about um, that come at the end of these letters are eternal promises. They all have, a, they have, all have something to do with the reward that we receive in heaven by being faithful to him. Um, just a real brief review. I'm going to run through this like I ran through that wedding ceremony yesterday. But we are at the last church. And so I just want to go back and, 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 and I want you to see that these churches can represent, they do represent an actual church um, that existed when John wrote these letters and delivered these letters to them. Um, they also can represent any church or any Christian at any time in history. And they may also represent different ages or, or periods of church history. And that gets a little bit fuzzy to me after about the fourth church. It gets a little bit harder for me to follow that line of reasoning. But I do believe there's some stuff that you can glean from that. But the first letter was to Ephesus. They were the church that were living well but not loving well. They had good deeds Jesus commended them that they hated the deeds that he hated. Um, and, and, and so th- there was a lot to praise them for, but there were also some criticism. I believe the church at Ephesus had become too legalistic, and they had left love off. They had left their first love. They were drifting away. Historically, that's probably the apostolic church um, that existed up to about 100 A.D. Um, the Smyrna church was only one of two churches that there was no condemnation, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Jesus had nothing to criticize them for. Um, the Smyrna church, was they were very poor. Um, they were in the, in the middle of some intense persecution. Um, but Jesus said that they were rich and that they would be rewarded. Um, there was nothing really for them to do except... Uh, all he told them to do was don't be afraid of what's coming. 
Don't be afraid that persecution is going to intensify and some of you are going to be thrown in jail and some of you are going to be killed. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. Just believe. And that was all that he gave them to do, just to keep standing where they were standing. Historically, that represented the age when Christianity became the most hated up until the conversion of Constantine in 312 OD. That, that was five million Christians gave their life because of their profession of faith in Christ. Nero used them to light his gardens at night. He used them as human torches. Um, they used them for games in the Colosseum. So uh, historically, I can see where these first three or four worked out perfectly as far as representations of church history. But then you get to the church at Pergamos. Um, they were getting along well. They were doing some good things, but they were going along with some things that would cost them in the long run. They were holding on to Christ's name and faith. They, they had the right belief system, but they were tolerating some false teachers in their midst. Um, that probably represents that age of church history between 312 and 606 um, A.D. when Christianity became very popular and became actually a state-sponsored religion so that if you were not inside the church, you could be persecuted by the state. Thyatira, they loved big. They were just the opposite of Ephesus. They had the love thing right, but they didn't have the deed thing right. They, um, th their faith was not, was not um, being manifested in um, righteous living. And so they, 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 where Ephesus was probably legalistic, um, Thyatira was, was very, very liberal. They permitted a woman there um, to teach a false doctrine and tolerated um, immoral deeds, and that probably represents the dark ages of the church from 606 to 1500, um, and, and, and the Reformation followed that. But Sardis walking and talking, but dead and dying. They had a form but no substance. But there were a few people, the Bible said, even at Sardis, um, who were still living for Jesus. And he told them um, that they needed to strengthen the things that remained in them because they were also um, ready to die. That would have been the Reformation era. And Reformation era was a good, it was a good thing that the Reformation happened, that there was a breaking away from the false teachings of Catholicism. Um, but it had its own errors in that they focused too much on one doctrine and not enough on, on another and the church kind of lost its evangelistic emphasis, and not many people were being converted. It was just mainly a breaking away of Catholicism and the reforming of a new church, which eventually became a state-run um, church in and of itself. Philadelphia, um, they were little in power, which may have mean they were little in their influence. It was a, a smaller city. There may not have been as many of them. Um, but they had, a, they, had, they had the dunamis. They had the Spirit of God in the midst of that. And Jesus said that because of that, he, had, he, would, he would give them an open door of opportunity. And that they would do incredible things at Philadelphia. This is also a church that had no um, condemnation. They were loaded down with promises from God. And that probably represents that post-Reformation era from the 1700s. Um, to pre-tribulation because Jesus said he'd take them out of the tribulation that is to come. Today we're going to talk about the last church, the church at Laodicea. There's a lot of titles that you could give this church, um, but this is the one that I kind of settled on, that they were Christians externally, but they were Christless internally. Um, when you look at... Um, Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth, where he, where he really breaks down this historical church age, he says that um, the, church, the Philadelphia church age and the Laodicean church age will walk hand in hand to the tribulation. The Philadelphia church will be taken out in the rapture and the Laodicean church because Christ was not really on the inside. It was an external religion, not an internal religion that they have to walk through um, the season of tribulation. Um, Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 says this, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent." 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The church at Laodicea was named after the wife of Antiochus II. Her name was Laodicea. Um, just a little bit of demographics. They were known to be a very wealthy city. And part of their wealth stemmed from the gold that was made there, refined there. Part of their wealth came from the production of a, of a very rare black wool. And, and they were known for that. Um, it was also, there was also a, a, um, um, a medical hospital slash university type thing there where people were being trained in medicines. And I just thought this was interesting because it ties in so much to what Jesus said. Um, that they actually produced a medication that was a form of a tablet. You can look this up. Google will tell you a lot of stuff if you look for it. It was a little tablet that they created that could be mixed with water and crushed and put on the eyes and that it helped heal eyes. It helped give people back their sight. All of that was interesting in relation to what Jesus, the message that he gave to them, was something that they could relate to in every sense of the word. The city of Laodicea was on the road to Coloss. I also found this very interesting. It was not very far from Coloss. You had to actually pass through Laodicea to get to the city of Coloss. There's no indication that, that Paul the Apostle ever visited Laodicea, but Laodicea was on his heart. I just want to read to you a couple of passages um, and, and to show you that this church was beginning um, to slip away a long time before John wrote this epistle. In Colossians chapter 2, Verse 1, in his letter to Colossus, Paul said, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. Paul was burdened for the church at Colossus and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And then he expressed his desires for those churches in, in, in regard to their relationship with Christ. And then when you get to the end of the book of Colossus, in Colossians chapter 4, um, verse 15, um, the Apostle Paul said, salute the brethren. He's, he's giving this to the church at Coloss, but he's saying, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. And he called one out by name, Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And, and I think by saying that, Paul's saying, I want you to make sure that this letter reaches um, that man and this house church. And then verse 16 he says, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it also be read in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul said, I want you to take what I've written to lay I want you to take what I've written to Coloss and make sure it makes it to Laodicea. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. He's like, I want you to just take it to them and ask them to read it. I want you to make sure the letter is read. You read it and you take it to them and you read it there. Then verse 17, there seems to be a calling out of one particular man in the church at Laodicea. Um, who was a, a, probably a leader of a house church, a bishop, a pastor. He said, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Now here's why I thought that was interesting. Paul expressed concern for the church of Laodicea in, in the letter that he wrote to the church at Coloss. That letter is pretty well, it's, it's, it's pretty much agreed upon that Paul probably wrote that letter to the church at Coloss around 60, um, around 60 A.D., and um, so, and, and, and John is writing this, um, Jesus is giving this letter to John around 95 A.D. So the last 30, 35 years in the life of the church at Laodicea, they had been slipping away um, from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even Paul had expressed concern for them um, three to four decades before, and now John is writing to them. And this is, this is, a, this is probably the hardest church for me to understand um, because it doesn't even sound like Jesus is writing to a church. I had, to, I had to keep reminding myself as I was studying this that this is a congregation of people who call themselves Christians. This is a congregation of people who at one time had identified themselves completely with Christ. But now they have drifted completely away from Christ. So that no, he's no longer on the inside of the church. He's on the outside looking in. Um, apostasy is a biblical word. It means to fall away from faith. The church at Laodicea had fallen away from the faith. 
Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have an external profession of faith. That doesn't mean they were not saying that they were Christians. Um, they, they, they may have still been uh, in their words, and even in, they, they may have sang songs. They may have read from the Bible. Um, they may have had baptisms. They may have served the Lord's Supper. They may have done any of those things. Um, but it was an external profession of faith. They had fallen away from that internal possession uh, of faith. And, 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 and the Apostle Paul warned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there were some people that were teaching some false doctrines about the Antichrist having come, resurrection already been passed. And, uh, and I'm not going to dig too deep into this, but the Apostle Paul said um, he, he comforted them. By saying, we're not at that day yet. Jesus is not, he's not returned yet. The Antichrist is, is, is not on the scene yet. You've not missed anything yet. That's essentially what he's telling the church at Thessalonica. Stop worrying yourself about those that have died. They're okay. Um, and you're going to be okay if you, stay, if you stand fast in the faith. Uh, he said that day will not come except there come a falling away first. And when that falling away occurs, then that man... Um, of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, and we know that man to be the Antichrist. So this falls in line with, with the dispensational truth that it represents an age in church history in that there will be, when Jesus comes for his church, the Philadelphia crowd, um, there will be a church on earth that Christ is not inside, but that he is on the outside, and they are apostate. They have fallen away from the true faith and given in to the deception of the enemy, and they will be here when the Antichrist is revealed. Um, y'all, we're living in it. We're living in that age. Now, I'm not telling you that I, I don't know when Jesus is going to come, but I do know this, he come today. There ain't nothing that needs to be fulfilled for him to come. It, it's pretty obvious when you look at the, at the church world today that there has been a, a, a tremendous falling away from biblical Christianity. And I don't care what you call it. I mean, I, um, you can call it woke. You can call it progressive. You can, pro, you can call it liberal. But all of these woke, progressive, liberal churches that are denying the authority of scriptures and denying the lordship of Christ... They may be Christian in name, but Christ is not in the middle of that. He's not in the midst of that. Um, he's not inside that. He's on the outside of that, looking into that. Um, some, of the, some of the founding denominations, some of the denominations that were present when this country was founded, that were preeminent, that members of the signing documents of our nation's founding, they were members of these mainline denominations. And they're falling like dominoes now to this apostasy. And I could name a bunch of names this morning, but I'm not going to go down the list. There's been a bunch of them. I mean, I'm not talking about just individual churches. I'm talking about whole denominations that used to be strong, solid, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Jesus-following, holiness-pursuing congregations and denominations have fallen away from the true faith and bought into the deceptions of the enemy. And, um, and, and, and we see it all around us. It's happening today. We see it all around us today. The social media has made the proliferation of these false doctrines a whole lot easier, and so they're reaching a whole lot more people. And there are a lot of um, people who have professed faith in Christ that have been, that have been sucked away into this woke progressive liberal theology because it makes them feel comfortable with who they are and with who their friends are. Um, but, but, but this is a dangerous place to be. Laodicea, before Jesus addressed anything to them, he reminded, he revealed himself. He unveiled himself to them. He said three things about himself. He said, I'm the amen, I'm the faithful and true witness, and I'm the beginning of creation. Um, and, and saying I'm the amen, amen to me means final word. You sing a song, you say amen. You, you pray a prayer, you say amen. Somebody, somebody says a, an emphatic, truthful, authoritative statement and we, we follow that up with amen. It means the final word. And so to me that means that Jesus is the judge. I have 
the final word. I have the final say. God has appointed me to make judgment upon um, this earth. The faithful and true witness that he is the revealer, that what he has said is true. And it ain't what we say that, that makes... The Laodicean church has something to say about themselves that Jesus said was absolutely not true. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness, and whatever he's witnessing about is faithful and true. If he's telling us who God is, it's a faithful and true witness. If he's telling us who we are, it's a faithful and true witness. If he tells us what he's going to do, it's a faithful and true witness. He is the revealer of all truth. All truth is in him. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I don't believe Jesus was created. I believe that he is the creator of all creation. John chapter 1 makes that abundantly clear that by him the Father created all things. By Jesus the world was created and framed. Hebrews chapter 1 says the same thing. So, so take, if you take that in its reverse order, this is, a, this, is a little, this is just a simple unveiling of Christ and his ministry to mankind from the very beginning of time. He began as the creator. He is the revealer of all truth about God and about man. And he will be the final judge of man before God. So you take that into reverse order. Jesus has unveiled himself before the Laodicean church for all of his ministry to mankind from the very beginning. And then he unveils, if you will, the Laodicean church. Um, this is the only one of seven of the seven churches that had no commendation at all. Jesus did not have anything good to say about the Laodicean church. Now, every other church, even Sardis, Sardis was pretty, was, was pretty bad, dead and dying. Um, but, but, but he said, even in Sardis, there are a few of you have not, who have not defiled your garments. So even in Sardis, there was a little bit, it, it was a commendation, even though it was a little bit offhanded, a little bit backhanded, if you will. It was a commendation, but there is nothing positive said about the church at Laodicea, nothing. Jesus had no commendation at all for this church. Instead, what he said about them is that you are sickeningly lukewarm. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're just lukewarm. Now, think about this for a minute. Think about it in these terms. To be cold, I think is obvious, is to be spiritually lifeless. To be Hot is to be spiritually fervent. In fact, I looked up the Greek word for it, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, but it was, um, it, it literally, just reading the Greek word make you think this is something that's ablaze. This is something that's on fire. And then that term lukewarm is just to have a form, but it's fake. It's, it's spiritually indifferent. Now, I thought this was interesting, too. Um, the church at Laodicea actually received their water through conduits from, to, to, from another city. And so it may have came out of a well and it may have been cold when it came out of the well, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. So they understood this concept of hot, cold, lukewarm. We don't typically drink anything lukewarm, by the way. We either want it cold or we want it hot. We don't want anything in between. And so Jesus said about this church, you are sickeningly lukewarm. Now, we, we understand why hot is better. Jesus said, I wish you were either cold or hot. And I understand why hot is better. I like my coffee hot. If it gets too warm, I'm a I'm a th throw it in the microwave or, or something. I'm a, I'm gonna heat it back up if it if it cools off too much. Um, I understand the benefit of something hot, but why would you say I'd rather you be hot or cold? But instead, you're lukewarm. So so I've I thought about this and pondered it and read what other people have to say about it, and I think I agree with this. Do you prefer authenticity from somebody? Would you rather somebody just be who they are? Y'all like dealing with fake people? I don't like dealing with fake people. I'd rather, I mean, I can, if, you, if I know who you are, I, I can deal with that. If you want fire for Jesus, then I'm going to root you on. If you don't know Jesus at all, if you're just cold, completely lifeless, then I know how to work with that. But if you're somebody who names the name of Jesus but don't look anything like Jesus and don't talk anything like Jesus, don't act anything like Jesus, don't think anything like Jesus, you just put on a persona of 
religiosity. I have I struggle with that. I want I, I'd rather know the authentic person. I'd rather know what the who who the real deal is. I can deal with the real deal better than I can deal with with with, with something that's giving me mixed signals about who they are. And and I, I think what, what Jesus is saying is that is that um, there are churches and Christians. I should put that in. Let me put it in some parent, uh, some quotation marks for you. All right, there are some there are some churches and Christians in this world who claim Christ, but whom Christ has no claim upon. They name the name. They say the things. They talk the talk. And in some cases, they, they may even put on some form of a walk. But Jesus really has no claim on them as far as being Savior and Lord of their lives. They have a profession of salvation, but there's no proof in their life that they have submitted themselves to Christ. And, 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 and what Jesus said about this church is that their pretense, their presumption made him want to vomit. When he said, I, I, because you aren't cold and you aren't hot, because you're lukewarm, because you are pretentious and presumptuous, you're pretending to be somebody that you are not, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, that's the literal word. Look it up for yourself. I literally will, will throw you up. You make me sick. The pretense and the presumption was a, it was a charade, and Jesus saw right through the charade. He knew exactly who they were. It was, a, it was a disguise. It was a dangerous disguise. It was a dangerous disguise for them, and it was a dangerous disguise for other people. And Jesus looked at the church and said, it makes me sick who you are and what you're doing. Because not only could other people be led astray by this church, <clears throat> By the way, that always makes me matter. I think that always arouses more righteous indignation in me than seeing somebody living in willful sin. If somebody's trying to lead other people to follow them. Listen, if you want to go to hell, if you want to make those choices yourself and follow that, um, I feel sorry for you, I'm sad for you, but you have a free will just like I have a free will. You make your choices. But, but when you begin to pull other people along this road with you, I'm, I'm, one of the things that bothers me so much about this, about this woke, progressive, liberal, um, I'm, I, I've started calling it the alphabet mafia, is they are targeting children. And you can say what you want, they are targeting, they are doing their very best to influence and indoctrinate the youngest among us. And I'm, I'm just going to warn you, the more socially acceptable something, it's sinful. But the more that sin becomes socially acceptable in this culture, the more success the enemy will have in his deception of them. There's a reason behind this targeting, and it's demonic, it's satanic. And there are churches that are on board with this. There are churches that have climbed right into this. Um, to this mafia and, and are encouraging it and supporting it and applauding it in every way that they can. And they are, as far as I'm concerned, they are the Laodicean church of today. And, they, and it makes Jesus sick. What they, what they do under the banner of love. And listen, I know, I've, seen, I've seen the, the t-shirts, love is love. Now you're confusing love with lust. You're confusing love with sex, and those two things are not the same. Not only, not only are they lukewarm and making Jesus nauseous, but the other danger in this, not only are you leading other people astray, but you, but you can lead yourself into some serious self-deception. Now, I'm, this is hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But there are a whole lot of these people who really believe they're okay. And they really believe what they're telling you and what they're telling me is the truth. Now, I, I have a hard time with that because I know what the Bible says. 
It's pretty plain to me. I mean, I don't, I don't tell you there ain't no parts of the Bible I don't struggle to understand because I do, but that's not something that, to me, the, the Bible has a whole bunch to say about these issues, and it's pretty clear to me. But these folks really believe that they're right, and it's hard for me to understand that until you read what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, which says, because they had pleasure in unrighteousness instead of having a pleasure in the truth of what God said, um, then God gives them over to strong delusion. God lets them go and take that course that they want to take. And they believe the lies that the enemy is telling them and are damned because of it. Romans chapter 1 says the same thing. Start reading about verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter and you'll see, you'll see that it says this. They had a knowledge of God. The Bible said, in fact, they knew God but would not glorify Him as God but became vain in their imaginations and began to make up their own ideas about who God was. And, and the Bible says that they suppressed the truth because of their unrighteousness and they became self-deceived. You've heard me say this before and I'll say it until Jesus comes. The most dangerous deception in this world is self-deception. When you believe your own lies, when you believe the things that you once knew to be untrue, but you've bought into it because you have pleasure in living your life the way you want to live it instead of the way God intended for us to live it. So here's what I believe, is that there's more hope for a lost man who knows he's lost. Cold and lifeless. There is more hope for a lost man who knows that he is lost than for, a, than for a lost man who thinks he's saved. Amen. And listen, there are a lot of these folks in this Laodicean church who say, we don't need anything, we've got everything, we are who we're supposed to be, we are who God wants us to be. We have it all going on. We're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They see themselves in a completely different way than Jesus saw them. They are absolutely, completely, totally self-deceived. And, and I, I, a false sense of security, to have a false sense of security will make one stop looking for true security. When somebody thinks that they're saved, they quit looking. They have a false assurance they believe that they have something that they have never possessed. There are folks like that out there. But they're spiritually destitute. That's what Jesus is saying about Laodicean church. You're destitute. You, are, you, are, you do not have a clue. Can I just say this? Be, you being happy where you are does not mean that you're right where you are. And, and, and this is the mentality of, of the layout. This is the Laodicean mentality. If, if, if it feels good, if it feels right, if I'm, if I'm happy where I'm at, then I must be where God wants me to be. Now, you, 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 can, you can pacify your flesh. You can, you, can, you, can, you, you can feed your flesh. You can experience those, those emotional highs. There's pleasure in sin for a season. These people had completely deceived themselves into believing that they were Christians. But it was just an external show. Um, their wealth, and, and, and I think you can look at that. They said to themselves, we're, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And I try hard not to just call people out by name, but it, it don't matter how wealthy the church is. It don't matter how many people attend the church. Listen to me. There's some churches out there that are running 10, 12, 15,000 people right now. There's a church in the Atlanta area that has six or eight campuses. A lot of people going. Um, and they have bought into the woke, progressive, liberal theology of... You can be anything and anybody that you want to be, and God still loves you. Listen, they got big buildings. They got all the techno. They got the full-blown productions. I mean, they've got a um, million dollars worth of staff standing on the stage, and 
And the pastor's living in a multi-million dollar mansion. And listen to me. They said, the Laodicean church said, We are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And I, I just want you to understand that, that you may look at that church and say, Well, they're successful. And the church may look at that, the world may look at that church and say, Look what God is blessing them with. And there ain't no truth in that. There ain't no truth in that. I'm not saying all big churches are corrupt or Laodicean, but you can't judge a church by the external appearances and totally miss what's going on inside. You can judge a Christian. You can judge somebody that professes to be a Christian and totally miss what's going on inside. So just because they have wealth, just because they have a huge attendance, just because they have a lot of activity, just because they're respected by the world, does not mean that Jesus is living in the midst of it. Now that's all the bad stuff. And, that's, and it's bad. But there's an invitation given to this church that made Jesus sick. That, that, that are so self-deceived, they think everything's all right. And Jesus said, there's nothing right there. But he gives them an invitation. And, and it's a little bit confusing because he says, I counseled you to buy from me. Now, we understand salvation is a free gift. So what's this coming from? Um, I'm not going to turn to it. Zena, can you put it up? Isaiah chapter 55. This is, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Jesus. And here's what he said. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Now, there's a hint there. It don't matter if you have money. You come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. The second verse. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. That's a messianic prophecy. Who, who, the, who Isaiah used the same kind of language that Jesus is using. Come and buy from me. It ain't going to cost you anything. You can't buy what I'm giving you with money. You can, you can come. You can hear me and come. And I'll give you that that satisfies your soul. Same kind of mercies that I gave to David. Um, when you read the first chapter of Isaiah... He is writing to a religious nation, to Judah, to a nation who claimed to be God's people. You go read the whole, I'm not going to read it all. I'm not going to read any of it. I'm just going to quote a portion of it. In the middle of that first chapter, he's, he's, he's writing to a nation and said, you're sick. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you are sick. Wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's how he described the nation of Judah. In fact, he called Judah Sodom. In Isaiah chapter 1. He called God's people. He referred to the people of Judah as behaving like the people of Sodom. But in verse 18, he said this. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So even after that scathing rebuke and condemnation, he said, now, now come. I've unveiled you. I've shown you who you are. Now come. Re let's reason together. Symbolically, he said, buy from me gold. I think that means spiritual value. Buy from me white raiment. White raiment is always a symbol of the righteousness of Christ, so there's spiritual virtue. I salve, so that you can see clearly a spiritual vision. Now, you take that in reverse order. Here's what lost people need. Lost people need spiritual vision in order to see their need for salvation. They need to be able to know that they're lost. Lost people need spiritual virtue. They need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to them because none of us are virtuous on our own. None of us are righteous on our own. So they need, they need white raiment. They need spiritual virtue that comes from a relationship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they need that spiritual value that comes from our identity in Christ. The Bible says our faith is like gold that is tried by the fire and just purified in it. So there is, in the reverse order, vision to see your need, virtue to cover your nakedness, and value to make you truly, spiritually rich. Not just rich in money or rich in attendance or rich in the world's view. And then there's an invitation there for them to just just let me in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him. And he with me. What does that mean? It means you, you got to realize that you are not who you think you are. You, you, you have to first abandon that false sense of security that you have. You recognize that I'm telling you what I'm telling you. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So he says, you got to understand that what I just said about you is not because I hate you. It's because I love you. Just because I just told you that you make me sick. Because you're lukewarm, just because I just told you that you're that you're miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked, I want you to understand that my words to you may have hurt. They may have they may have come upon you like a like a wrecking ball, but 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 this is where they come from. I love you enough to rebuke you. I love you enough to chasten you. I love you enough to hurt you so that I can heal you. Let me in. Hear me knocking. How does Jesus knock at our heart? Listen, I'm convinced that I'm convinced that not only are there whole churches that are that are that Jesus is on the outside looking in, but I believe there are Christians, people who profess to be Christians in every church, who have a false sense of security about who they are. They say the name, they sing the songs, they went through the baptismal pool. But there's no submission to Christ in their life. Not in their words, not in their actions, not in their attitudes. And so Jesus says, I'm trying to break all that down so that you can hear me. I'm knocking. How does he do that? He knocks through his word. That's what we're doing this morning. He knocks through the conviction of his spirit. He knocks through the witness of his church. When, when, it, when we do what he's called us to do, when we, when we love people enough to rebuke them and chasten us, he uses his church. He even uses his own providence. He, he creates situations and circumstances in people's life where they find themselves wallowing in the hog pen and miserable with who they are. That's divine providence, and God speaks through that and calls people to himself. But he won't force his way in. I hung that picture. That picture hangs in my office. That came out of my granny's house. I don't know if some of you can see it from that side. But I remember one time as a little kid sitting down in granny's house. And I'd, I'd spend a lot of time with my, my daddy's mama. And um, I remember asking her one day, Granny, what's, who's that in that picture? And she said, that's Jesus. And I said, what's he doing? She said, he's knocking on a door. And I'm like... He's Jesus, can't he just go in? I mean, Jesus ain't got to knock at my house if he wants in. Come on. <laughs> but she said there ain't a handle on the outside. The door's locked from the inside. He ain't gonna force his way into our lives. He ain't gonna force his way into our churches. We gotta hear the word. We gotta heed the spirit. We gotta listen to the message of the true church. We gotta understand that God puts us in places in life where we can hear his voice. But it's up to us to hear and open to him.
Jesus' consolation, and I'm done, is just as sure and certain and eternal for the Laodicean church as it was the church at Philadelphia. He said, if you will hear and open, I will come in and sup with you and you with me. Now, what's this whole business about supping? I'll come in and eat with you. I'll come in and fellowship, feasting and fellowship. All you have to do is open the door. I'm not going to be on the outside looking in anymore. I'm going to be on the inside with you looking out. What, what I'll give you if you'll hear and open that door is a real and rewarding relationship with the only begotten Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of glory. And I want to just tell you, there ain't no experience on earth. You can't be a part of any experience on earth that compares to the righteousness, peace, and joy of Christ's kingdom. It's the only place that a man, woman, boy, or girl can have true contentment and satisfaction, spirit, soul, and body. It's the only place that that void that's left in your heart can be made whole, healed. Everything else is just a cover-up. And not only can you feast and fellowship with me, but you can rule and reign. Now, how incredible is God's grace? I mean, we're looking at a church that he said, you make me want to vomit. You are so self-deceived, you don't even know who you are anymore. I've loved you enough to tell you that, and I'm knocking. I want in. And if you'll hear and open, I'll let, not only will I, not only will I come in, I'll feast with you, I'll fellowship with you, and you'll rule and reign with me. That's good news, folks. From us making Jesus sick to Jesus making us sit on a throne with him forever. That's powerful. And I'm going to tell you something. There was a day and time in my life that I made Jesus sick. There was a day and a time in my life that I walked through that pretense and that presumption. When I, I remember the, night I, the morning I called my pastor. After I had that encounter with Christ that Tuesday night, I called him that Wednesday morning. I mean, I woke Cindy up and said, baby, I got saved last night. And she looked at me like, I thought you was done saved. <laughs> and I didn't tell her what I'd done Monday night at that point. But, and I called my pastor, and I'm like, on Wednesday morning, I said, Brother Amos, I just want to call and tell you that I had, a, I had an encounter with Jesus last night. Changed me. I mean, I heard him knock. And I cracked that door open and he came rushing in. And he said, I thought you was already saved. And I said, <laughs> I, said I, I wasn't, but I am. And I, my, my next question is, what you got planned for tonight? And he said, what do you mean? I said, you going to preach tonight? And he said, well, I planned on it. And I said, can I? He said, sure. I said, I just want to tell people in this church that I've been lying to them and lying to myself and lying to my family and lying to my Jesus for too long but I've come home that's how rich his grace is he swept into my heart on a Tuesday night and I stood behind a pulpit and proclaimed his name on a Wednesday night now I didn't have any dream in my there's nothing in my heart and mind thought I'd ever be pastoring a church that Wednesday night I just was so full of Jesus I had to pour some of it out When you come to Christ, the Bible says in Romans eight seventeen that he makes you an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, 10 says that he made, makes us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. There, 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 Jesus didn't point out, although I believe that there was probably some stuff there, there was no real gross wickedness revealed in the church at Laodicea, just a false, fake version of Christianity. 
I mean, he, some of the other churches, he said, you got those people there that are immoral. You got those that have the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You got those who suffered that woman Jezebel, who are committing adultery. The only thing he said about the church at Laodicea is you're faking it. I'm not there. You have a pretense. I'm not going to go read it because I've already gone over, but Luke chapter 13, Jesus saw a fig tree. Didn't have any fruit on it. And he cursed it. Or he said, no, he said, dig it up. Luke chapter 13, he said, dig it up. Why, why are you letting that fig tree cumber the ground? That was his words. It, it's a, it looks like a fig tree, but it doesn't have any fruit on it. Pull it up. And the gardener came along and said, Lord, don't, not yet. Let me, let me dig around it. Let me loosen up the soil around it. Let me put some fertilizer on it. And, and, and let's give it a year. And then if it doesn't produce fruit, then we'll cut it down. So what does our life look like? Is it truly producing fruit? Is the fruit of the Spirit being manifested? Is the fruit of righteousness being shown to others because of the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 5, that if we abide in Him and He abides in us, we will bring forth fruit. Not just some fruit, much fruit. It ain't enough just to look like a fig tree on the outside if you're not, having, if you're not bearing the fruit. It's not enough to be living in a vineyard if you're not connected to the vine. And so I want, I, I want, I want you to know this morning, there's no good reason to fake a relationship with Jesus. Why? Jesus said, I'd rather, you be, I'd rather you be stone cold lifeless than I had you fake knowing me. Because you're not only hurting yourself with a false sense of security, but you could very well be leading other people astray as well. Is Jesus on the outside of your life looking in? Or is he sitting with you in fellowship? Is he ruling and reigning in your heart, in your life? Has the kingdom of God come and is the will of God being done in you as it is in heaven? Can you hear him knocking? Can you hear him knocking? I can tell you how it started for me that Tuesday night. When I just reached over and picked up that Bible, my heart started pounding. Because I knew that what was in this book was true. I've been taught it all my life. I hadn't read it and I hadn't practiced it, but I knew what was in it was life-changing. My heart started pounding. I remember sitting in church hearing the Word of God being preached. My palms get so sweaty. My knuckles be white. I didn't, you know, I, I was satisfied with just pretending. I was satisfied that these, nobody knows I went to bed many a night with a guilty, 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 shame-laden conscience. Guess where that came from? It wasn't the enemy. That was a Lord who loved me enough to rebuke me and chasten me, to convict me. If you hear him knocking this morning... Please let him in. Please let him in. It's possible for true Christians to drift off into just an apathetic indifference to Christ. I think if we're, if we're honest, it's easy for us just to kind of go through the motions sometimes. We're not really hot. We're not really cold. Just kind of drifting along. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous place to be because there's no real joy there and there's no real contentment there. And can, I, can you just, will you just admit this for me? If you're not getting any real joy and contentment in your relationship with Christ, then the enemy is going to have an easy time tempting you with something that you might perceive to be better. And you'll fall off into something and ruin your testimony and ruin your witness for Christ. 
to, it's important that your relationship with Christ be living, breathing, fruitful, so that it's full of joy and contentment. Because not only are you not an asset to the kingdom when you get like that, but you, you're a liability in the sense that you may lead other people astray. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come to, have, I've come to give life. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And, and so we have to be careful because if, 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 if Satan has his way in a Christian's life, he's going to steal, kill, and destroy our witness and our testimony. Make us a liability to the kingdom, not an asset. There's no reason for a Christian to ever drift away into that state of being lukewarm either. As our musicians come, let's stand. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I see around me, around us, even around the world, Lord, there are churches that look so much like the description of the Laodicean church. so far from your word so far from being submitted to your lordship so so far from a revelation of your true character in that you are a god of love but you are also a holy god churches that are creating caricatures of christ and not receiving the full revelation of who you are Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened for them. And in some ways, angry at the way that others are being led astray through that ministry. And, and I just pray, God, that you, would, um, that you would rip away the disguise. They would see themselves as you see them. And Lord, there may be... There may be somebody here. I, I was there one time. I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to admit that you've been living a lie. To tell the people that, that live in your own home that you've just been pretending. To tell the people that have sit beside you in a pew that you've, that you've not had a real relationship with Jesus. That, that pride, boy, we, we have a hard time. We have a hard time surrendering and humbling ourselves and admitting our need. But Lord, I, I pray again, Lord, that there never be a person that sits in this sanctuary that would have a false sense of security and walk out of here lost but believing that they're saved. So right now, I pray that if there is one here been living that lie that I lived, that others are living, that you would knock right now very loud and clear. May they, through the preached word, through the moving of the Holy Spirit, through the witness and testimony of others in the church, I pray they would hear your voice and by faith open that door submitting completely and authentically to you Lord Jesus not just as an escape from hell but as a as an entrance into the kingdom where you are sitting on the throne of their heart feasting and fellowshipping with them and ruling and reigning in them. Have your will and your way this invitation and do your work and we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>